Good afternoon, Sheepgate. It is August 23rd, 2020. Welcome to our Sunday fellowship, or Sunday service, or with Sheepgate Fellowship. Today we are continuing our sermon series on the book of Daniel and on the figure of Daniel. This month, of course, is Daniel month. So we are on our second last, uh, the, what is it, the fourth of our Daniel sermon series. Last week, we, of course, observed uh, Daniel chapter 5, where, of course, we read the words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson, and where we observed the handwriting on the wall on which Daniel was able to interpret, ending in the death of Belshazzar, the Chaldean king. So today we are picking right up where we left off last week, and we are in Daniel chapter 6. Now I'm going to be preaching on the entire text of Daniel 6, but we're going to read verses 10 to 28. Again, this is probably a familiar story for many of those who grew up in the church, especially Sunday school. This is one of those classic Sunday school stories. If you grew up on VeggieTales, it's a classic VeggieTales episode, right? It's just one of those, uh, one of those stories in the scriptures, one of the one of those narratives in scripture that is critical uh, for Christians to read. But just because it's a Sunday school story does not mean that it doesn't hold absolutely fundamental truths for every Christian in any season at any age. Of their life. Let's read together Daniel 6, verses 10 to 28. I'll read, you can follow in your Bibles. This is what the Word of God says. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, the, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days, is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you sign, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then, as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. <laughs> then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever! My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. 
Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land. May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Amen. This is the word of God. Oh man, lots to pray for brothers and sisters as we pray over the text today. I hope and pray that it would speak to you, uh, not me, but the Holy Spirit into your heart that you would be compelled and convicted. Our unreached people group of the day comes from Pakistan. They are called the Tali, the Tali. They are of uh, Muslim, they are Muslims and they are of the, of course, the Islamic tradition. There are about 2.9 million of these people, non-Christian, non-evangelical. We want to pray today for the Tali of Pakistan, 2.9 million of them. Also, we want to pray for the motherland. Uh, many of us, of course, are Koreans by genetics. <laughs> Uh, some of us born there. Uh, there's a lot going on there right now. Of course, there's a lot of COVID stuff going on right now across the world. Schools are starting to open. There's debate over whether that's good or not. But back home, there is unfortunately a crisis. Crisis, not so much with COVID. I think that's going to go under. I mean, eventually that's going to, I think Korea has proven itself to be able to put those things under control. The more difficult uh, fire to put out right now is the anger against the church. Um, unfortunately, at the central heart of uh, the COVID outbreak in Korea right now is a church. Um, it's called Chae Sarang Kyue, or uh, Love Church, whatever, I don't know what it is in English. Anyways, um, they held a conference, if you haven't been keeping up to date, uh, in defiance against uh, some of the government policies, resulting in hundreds of COVID cases and an outbreak across the country. What's worse, they are not cooperating with government officials. They are now considered criminals uh, under Korean law. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of the members of the church are in flee and are refusing to cooperate with uh, government officials to track down and trace um, the COVID outbreak. And this is, an, uh, this is of course, um, quite unfortunate because the uh, outcry against the church now is monumental. Uh, I was talking to a couple of my friends in Korea today this morning and because uh, they're 13 hours ahead of us, uh, no one's at church. No one's coming out to church. So churches are open, but no one's coming out. Uh, it's, it's heartbreaking to see that kind of uh, recklessness and irresponsibility from a mega church in Korea. And it uh, just goes to show that as a church, we must be responsible um, to act responsibility with our government officials to be healthy and, and strong witnesses of Christ, to be good ambassadors of the kingdom of God. That does not mean we bend or bow ourselves to government officials. Um, of course, Christ is head, but uh, we cooperate in the best of our abilities to make sure the witness of Christ is uh, continues uh, where we are. So let's pray for the motherland, We're praying for Korea this morning and uh, the unfortunate reality that is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather together around the word of God in Daniel 6. May it move and compel our hearts. May it teach us. May it feed us. We pray for the Tali of Pakistan. We pray, O oh Lord, that the missional efforts and works that are happening in Pakistan through the few Christians that are there and the missionaries that are present, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be preached. 
that 2.9 million of these people would come to know and understand what that gospel entails, whether they accept, whether they receive, whether they truly open their hearts. You know, that's on your end, God. But all we want are for our messengers of the gospel to be present and preaching boldly and fearlessly in that land. God, we also pray for Korea. We pray, Lord Father, for the unfortunate circumstance that the church finds itself in through the irresponsible acts of a few people. Um, only you can be, of course, judge of them, uh, whether they were acting with good intent or whether they're not. Uh, Father, we pray uh, for the Christians in Korea right now who are undergoing incredible scrutiny, who are undergoing unbelievable amount of criticism. The Father, this is in a sense the modern perseverance of the church, or sorry, the modern persecution of the church. And what we pray for is perseverance in their faith. We pray for boldness and we pray for spiritual revival in the individual lives of every believer of that country. We pray for a revival that would mimic and echo the revival that brought about the faith in the many lives um, of the Korean people of that peninsula a hundred years ago, many of which are our own grandparents or are our own parents who were saved through the many efforts of many different missionaries and gospel-believing Christians in that country. We pray for home. Your will be done. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's sermon is entitled, Cast into the Lion's Den. I want to just quickly parallel, I mean, people are going to draw these comparisons, but with what's happening in Korea right now with uh, the church, people are going to say, well, what's so different about that? and uh, what's happening in California with John MacArthur's church. If you don't know, an update on John MacArthur's church, Grace Community Church has been giving um, legal permission to gather because they are standing on constitutional rights. Um, of course, they're not, in a sense, they are, in a sense, defying government law, but they're, but they're defying government law on the premise of government law, right? So that's different from what's happening in Korea. In Korea, you have an act of defiance, uh, and then once you're caught and once you're in a situation where there is a COVID outbreak, um, they're not acting responsibly, right? And so that's, that's the difference, right? That, I think that's a huge, huge difference in what's happening in California, in, what, in what's happening in Nevada, and what will be happening probably here in Toronto if there's a second wave, um, depending on what policies will be placed on religious institutions. Um, today's sermon is remarkably important for us uh, to understand to, to understand uh, truthfully in light of what season we are in in the church, especially as we observe what's happening in Korea right now. Cast into the lion's den. What we're going to see here today, if you forget everything else, is the unbelievable consistency of perseverance in the heart of Daniel. Let's read, or let's go into the word. Following Belshazzar's death at the end of chapter 5 and Babylon's fall to the Medo-Persian Empire, a man named Darius is given rule over the former state of Babylon. History has no record archaeologically of a king named Darius, but it was common in these times that kings have multiple names that different people groups would refer to them as, right? Um, so there would be a whole bunch, uh, there would be a series of names for different kings, okay? Um, Darius might have, and these are some of the options that we have here Darius might have been an alternative name to Cyrus who is named at the end of chapter 6 right so you had uh, at the end of chapter 6 verse 20 so this Daniel enjoys success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus Persia now in English we're going to read that as two different people 
but it's possible that it's the same person, right? Um, it's possible, but maybe not likely. But it could be a, a pseudonym that, that Cyrus is under. Uh, it could be the same person. Uh, who was, of course, Cyrus was, of course, the actual acting emperor or king of the Medo-Persian Empire. It might have been possibly one of Cyrus's sons. Like Darius could have been one of his sons entrusted with what would have been considered the Babylonian province at that time of the Medo-Persian Empire. So it could have been one of Cyrus's sons. Or here's what I think, and I think this is the most likely. It could have been, uh, this is a funny name, could have been this guy named Gubaru who is recorded in archaeological history during this time. And he was an official that history records as a ruler over Babylon. And he was appointed directly by King Cyrus, of course, also is archaeologically recorded as a king of, of the Medo-Persian Empire. The third option, to me at least, seems likely, but we cannot be certain, so I'm not going to say that, right? Don't take that as, like, absolute truth. It's just, you know, there's a missing part of history. Um, but that's what we got. What we know, scripture, he's reserved, or he is recorded as Darius, and that's what we're going to treat him as. So, what we can be sure of in this chapter is that Daniel, yet again, Daniel, yet again, by yet under another king, is found to be of high stature, looked upon with great regard. Daniel and two other satraps were given authority over the other 117 satraps, just wise men, in the entire kingdom of the Middle Persian Empire. Now, what was their job, these 120 men? Their job as a whole was to oversee the finances, the taxes, and any other areas of potential financial loss. They're kind of like accountants, okay? So they were responsible for handling the finances of the kingdom wisely. And even among these 120, the top three, or there are a top three that are chosen, Daniel and two others. Daniel, of course, even among those top three, was a clear-cut top favorite of the king. Now this sets up the whole narrative of today's passage, right? It, it, it is the root of the problem itself. Problem being that Daniel gets arrested and is thrown into aligns then. So, what we know from the book of Ezra in the Bible is that in Cyrus's first year as the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, conquering Babylon, uh, he welcomed the exiled Jews uh, to go back home. He allowed them to return to Jerusalem. He allowed them to rebuild their temple and their city. He allowed them to restore their religious practices and traditions, and he allowed them to return the stolen treasuries of the temple back into the temple of God. So this is the beginnings of, of course, the story of Nehemiah, the story of uh, Haggai, right? The story of Malachi, or is it Micah? Um, all of that, right? So you get sort of those prophets, those minor prophets that come out, and those stories of the rebuilding of the temple post-exile, post-Babylonian exile, right? These, of course, are events that are rec recorded in prophecy before they happen in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Ezekiel, all of these things already prophesied, right? So, what we know is, so God is like overseeing all of these events. Daniel, just think about it. Daniel, a, a Jewish man, is found in high regard. The king, probably observing Daniel, and of course, when you read the story, you can understand that Darius was in love with Daniel, in a sense, probably saw good things about him, reported it back to Cyrus, and thus, Cyrus had a good image of the Jews, and thus allowing them to return home. Now, we can't conclude these things, but I'm just saying, I'm trying to connect the dots here, right? Uh, so most likely was the case. Not only that, Daniel was the 
leader basically in charge of the financial handling of the kingdom so you're allowing treasuries to return home you're allowing things to return back to the temple where they belong you're allowing the jewish people to be able to have the finances to even rebuild some of their uh some of their homes as well as the temple in the city of jerusalem so you can see how these things are connecting you can see how post-exile god is working to rebuild the nation of israel setting up the even greater rebuilding, which of course is Christ's incarnation, right? So this is the beginnings of this entire sequence of events historically that bring about the incarnation, that bring about the ministry of Christ and ultimately the atonement of Christ, right? So you can see how these things start to work together. It's really cool when you see everything fitting together. Okay, so Daniel was put in a position that would allow this process to unfold with, of course, God, uh, with his overseeing his godly wisdom, or overseeing with his godly wisdom, I should say. And God, of course, is the orchestrator, right? The great orchestrator of all of this, all of these events, of this entire sequence of history. Now, what caught Darius' uh, attention with Daniel was, as recorded, the spirit that he had, right? Uh, if you read verse 3, I believe. In verse 3, it says, then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And you can only conclude what that may, what that may be. So brothers and sisters, first lesson, you might think godliness is a weak attribute in the world today. Not true. You know, all throughout scripture and all throughout human history, godliness, holiness, and adhering to godliness in your life and demonstrating those attributes and those characters and what Paul would refer to as the fruits of the Holy Spirit in your life are actually very attractive attributes, even to the sinner. So Daniel catches some attention here, right? This spirit can not be like defined within the context of this text in and of itself. We can, of course, define it with elements of other, other texts bringing it in. But this spirit can only be concluded as one being from God. Jealousy begins to brew, however, not unlike Joseph's brothers. If you remember the story of Joseph and how his older brothers were so jealous of him and the love that he was being bestowed upon by his dad, a plot unfolds to remove Daniel, basically kill Daniel. They knew that his character could not be challenged in terms of its, you know, his godly character. So they acted maliciously to manipulate government law to challenge Daniel's religious practice. We can't attack his character character, so we're gonna we're gonna attack his religion. Classic move. Pause, brothers, sisters. Brothers and sisters, please pause for a moment here. Before we continue, just take note of this. Please take note of this. If those opposed to our faith, those who oppose our faith, are looking to attack us by means of legal measures designed to prevent our religious freedom and practice, but they find no wrong in our character or deed, punishable by government law, so much that they need to edit the law and alter the law to try us and convict us. Then bravo, church. Good job. <laughs> That's what we want. But here's the problem. 
They don't need to do that. Not today. Not in 2020. It's too easy to just attack the character of every Christian. That's what I get out of this. This is the challenge for us. Here's my challenge for you today. Let's make the world attack us by these means. They need to resort to this kind of pettiness to get at us. The king is, of course, manipulated. He has no idea what the intentions and plans of these people are for the plotting of these men and their evil intent. Regardless, the deed is done, and Daniel is now put in a position where his faithfulness and obedience will be challenged yet again. Decree is done. It's very much like the story of Esther. If you remember the king who decrees, you know, he's kind of manipulated. He makes a decree. Unfortunately, he doesn't know his wife is Jewish, right? And then all of a sudden, his entire wife's people group are going to die because of his own decree. And then she has to come up with a plot to manipulate. All that stuff, right? We would study the book of Esther a couple years ago. Same thing here. So that's the story. We're set up there. Let's look at the text. Verse 10. The pattern of Christian living. The habits of faithful life. The tenacity and relentless, unwavering godliness in the believer's life supersedes any earthly authority. Governments and kings can affect the fringes of Christian practice, but may it never cease it. They can tell us you can only have 30% in the room. They can tell us that you need to sanitize. They can tell us that we need to have all these measures and all this distancing and all these things in place for us to worship, but they cannot cease the worship. It cannot be so. Only when they say churches must close your doors, stop worshiping, can we then stand on the grounds of Scripture and say, you are not our authority. We will not cease. You know who's really good at challenging government officials on the grounds of religious freedom and practice? Not Christians, but Muslims. I remember a few years ago, oh my goodness, oh, I'm so sorry, it's not even a few years ago. It was so long ago, it was like 10 years ago uh, when I was in university. Um, I remember these ads that the local Canadian group of um, basically atheists there was a, a a prominent group here who's trying to advocate for atheism and so they bought off all these banners and subway ads and ttc ads and uh basically it just said there is no god stop worrying about it just live your life that was the message of the banner that was actually word for word what was written on these things there is no god stop worrying about it just live your life right and this was plastered all over the city of toronto right and uh one day they just disappeared so i wondered i'm like what was this? Like, where did it go? Turns out the Muslim group of Canada, like some prominent group of uh, local Muslims, fought on the grounds of religion. Like, they viewed this as an attack on their religiosity. And they fought this, right, in parliament, basically, or I guess in city hall. And all of these ads were removed. Where was the church? Why are we so ashamed? You know what I find extraordinary about Daniel is he doesn't pray when the government tells him he can pray. He doesn't pray because he's in a bad situation. 
or only when he's in a bad situation, only when he has he's challenged by eating the king's food in Daniel 1, only when he's, his friends are being thrown into fire furnace, only when these things are happening, only when he's in a position where he... Too many times our prayers are, are just events in our life. They're not habits. For Daniel, for the king to decree something like this upon Daniel, it's like Daniel telling Daniel, stop eating. And Daniel just wakes up and goes, oops, I ate breakfast. <laughs> oops, I ate lunch. Sorry, it's a habit. You ever tell an alcoholic or a smoker to stop drinking or smoking? It's really hard to get them to quit. You ever tell a Christian to stop praying? It should be hard to quit praying. But too many of us, it's hard to start. This is the beauty of what I see in Daniel. And this is, of course, is extended onto the person of Christ who does it even better. On the night of his arrest, what is he found doing? Praying. If I ever have the unfortunate circumstance of having to be at your deathbed as you breathe your last, my prayer is a hope my hope is that I would find you praying. Daniel continues to demonstrate his faithfulness to God, unhindering in the face of authority. He didn't have to think about it. He didn't sit down and go, oh yeah, that king's decree, hmm, should I pray today? Opens his window, gets on his knees, and prays. Here's one commentator on this. He says, It isn't hard to see why people are men-pleasers. It seems as if people have the power to hire or fire us, to break our hearts, to slander us, to make our lives generally miserable. The power to obey God and stand for Him comes from a settled understanding that it is really God who is in control. Daniel McLaren on this text writes this, Unless you are prepared to be in the minority, and now and then to be called narrow, fanatic, and foolish, and to be laughed at by men because you will not do what they do, but abstain and resist, then there is little chance of you ever making much of your Christian profession. That's a challenge. It's not a rebuke. I want to challenge you on that. Build good spiritual habits. It sounds so stupid, right? Max, I'm really struggling in my faith. What do I do? Do you read the word each day? Do you pray every day? Max, I need real solutions, not those stupid Sunday school solutions. Do you read the word every day? Do you pray every day? It's like going to a doctor and saying, I'm always hungry and thirsty. What do I do, doctor? Do you drink water every day? Do you eat every day? That's a stupid thing to ask. Tell me, why am I thirsty and hungry? I don't know who's stupid. Daniel had a habit and pattern of a life of daily prayer. He prayed in an upper room privately. He prayed as he looked towards Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees. He prayed three times a day and he prayed giving thanks. 
some might point to this and go, this sounds a little, like, Muslim. <laughs> Praying towards Mecca and all that stuff. No, this, there's reasons behind this stuff. For example, Psalm 55, David outlines a daily practice of three prayers that he had. I think Daniel is modeling himself after David's three times a day prayer, right? It's like, hey, my, you know, one of the greatest kings of Israel prayed three times a day. You know, it seems like a good habit to build. Let me do that. Don't get so caught up in three times a day, right? Whether you pray once a day, or five times a day, or ten times a day, it's not a strict number practice that we're dealing with. It's the practice of prayer that's happening. That's important, right? Jesus himself prayed, I think, consistently. Every morning, woke up, prayed. Don't laugh at our parents for going to early morning prayer. It's like, oh, what's the point of early morning prayer? That's nothing. That's a really incredible practice. Consistency. And Daniel seems to be modeling that. Some might look to his opening of the window and looking upon the broken ruins of Jerusalem, right? There's no temple, there's no temple practice at this moment. Why is he doing that? Is he worshiping the temple? Right? As a lot of New Testament people will start to point towards. No, that's not it at all. Brothers and sisters, read your Bibles. Solomon once prayed that God's people would pray in the sight of the temple as a remembrance of the need for God and his forgiveness always. A remembrance of our sinfulness and the goodness of God. Daniel opens his windows not to defy the law, but by publicly showcasing his prayer. Daniel is not opening the window so that everyone sees him praying. He's opening the window so he can pray the prayer that Solomon asked his people to pray. Look to the temple, remember your sins, remember his forgiveness, and pray. I think Daniel might have been praying for the restoration of not the temple, but of the attitude and hearts of God's people. Daniel opens his window to pray, as he always did. And you know what verifies this? The opposition. The opposition knew he would do it. What does that tell you? When a non-Christian can point to you and say, yo, I know this guy. He's going to pray regardless of what the king says. That is extraordinary, extraordinary compliment. Is it not? Verses 11 to 12, Daniel was found mainly because they were looking to arrest Daniel as they expected, doing exactly what they thought he would do. This is almost a, not almost, this is an absolute compliment to Daniel. They made a law based on their expectation that Daniel would continue to pray to God. Isn't that crazy? That's like the modern government going, how do we get rid of all these dang Christians? Oh, let's make a law that prohibits them from gathering. And when they do, we'll get them, <laughs> right? But how sad would it be if they made that policy and nobody gathered? What does that say about us? What does that really say about us? Can this even be expected of you and I? Verse 13, the charge that was built against Daniel was of total fiction. Daniel had no intention to oppose or disrespect Darius. They were on good terms. Daniel's consistent attributes of faithfulness and loyalty to God are all found throughout the entire book of Daniel. And they're met uh, with imaginary accusations by these men. 
It is egregious and humorous that the charge against Daniel was built on the expectations of a quality of a godly man. Verse 14, there are many times when our feelings and thoughts are so self-consumed and selfish that only once the realization of the consequences of selfish decisions come to surface and we face the reality, do we realize the foolishness of our conscience. We are moral monsters in this sense. We live in hindsight as godly men and women. Instead of looking to God's word as a guiding light or a leading compass, the word becomes simply a dose of reality after the matter. How many Christians have you met that say, I really reflected on God's word, and this is where God's word is directing me, and these are the decisions I want to make, even though I feel this way? How many Christians have you met like that? Most of the Christian testimonies are more like this. Dang, I really screwed up. And then I read God's word. And then I realized I screwed up. (laughs) Right? We live in hindsight. Stop. Stop living in hindsight. Use the word of God as foresight to make better decisions in your life. Actually, don't stop. Just do both. (laughs) Right? Have a balance of both. But preferably, prevent yourself from sinning. Stop yourself before that. Right? That's my hope for you. It's good, of course, to reflect back and be like, you know what, I should have done that in light of my faith, in light of what God has taught me and what God teaches me in His Word. But I would also like for an aspect of your testimony to be God leads me through His Word. That's my hope for myself, for you for the church. Can I encourage you all to not be led by your passions? I'm not saying passions are bad things. Just don't be led by them. But instead, be led by a foundation. Our foundation. Of course, being Christ. Let us look to do the right thing now. before making decisions, before taking action. Let our testimonies not solely be one of, I should have done this, but rather, God's word is leading me and teaching me to do this. Make it a present tense thing. John MacArthur writes in verse, on verse 14 of King Darius, He went from a self-styled God to a fool in one day, realizing the repercussions of his injunction. Which sets up verse 15. It was the law. Written law. Sealed by the signet ring of the king himself. However self-constructed and foolish, so the king had to abide by his own decree. His own decree became an enemy to his will. The law required that punishments be enacted on the day of the crime. The king worked for his beloved Daniel to be freed, but as soon as that sun set, he had to be thrown in. There's nothing the king could have done. There's nothing that that could be done. Verses 16 to 18. 
where the king could do nothing to save Daniel, no matter how much he tried. Only God could be the one to deliver and save him from harm and death. The king verbalizes his faith in Daniel's God. Whether he has faith, we cannot be sure of, but anyways, he verbalizes it. That Daniel's God would deliver him, a faith that certainly came from his observance of Daniel and his servitude of God. He cannot be, or so we cannot be sure of Darius' own personal faith in God. Whatever the case, what he utters is certainly true. Although here's the irony. The irony is that Daniel needs saving from Darius' own decree. Basically he's saying this. Hey, I think your God will save you from my law. I'm going to throw you in the lines then, but I hope he saves you. It is sad that only at the doorstep of death do many of us realize that life is not in our hands, but God's alone. If only we lived each breath deep in this realization. Commentators note on, this, on these verses, verses 16 to 18, that the Hebrew word for den is closely tied to the root word to dig. The verbal form. The den was likely a large hole in the ground where captives were lowered or thrown into, and lions would enter through a ramp and a door. The king appropriately seals the den with a large stone. There's two purposes for this. Now, of course, for many New Testament readers, keen Bible readers, you're immediately going to be drawn to the comparisons to Christ's own tomb where it is sealed, right? The tomb is sealed with a stone. But the only real connection here is the intent. Okay. Like in the case of Christ, Darius did not want anybody to enter or exit this den. Okay. He likely knew this, that conspirators that hated Daniel were afoot and that they would ensure the death of Daniel at any cost, just in case the lines failed, just in case. Somehow Daniel conquers the lions. Okay, then we'll just go in and we'll just wipe them out. and Blame it on the lions. Okay? Just in case. Darius wanted to make sure that if Daniel was going to die, it would be by the means of those lions alone. Jewish leaders also wanted to make sure that the body of Jesus would not be tampered with or stolen in the three days prior his death in order to fabricate a story of resurrection. That's what they were afraid of. That's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew and I think in Luke as well. In simple terms, the stone was a method to ensure a seal from entry or exit. Okay? That's the only comparison we can make. Other than that, that's it. Here's verses 19 to 22. Our crimes of sin are foremost a crime against a holy God. Only when we can be found blameless before Him not by our own deeds, but by the protection of God's deliverance, can we be saved from deserved death? What a prolific image of gospel salvation in this narrative. Secondary is Daniel's blamelessness before the king, King Darius. Although he did indeed break the decree of the king, his heart was not against him in doing so, but rather it was primarily for God. And this gives us a full understanding of how we are to prioritize things in this world. Right? As Christians, you may ask, well, when, are, when am I supposed to obey God? When am I supposed to obey government? Only when the government opposes the law of God do you always uphold primarily 
God. In fact, you should always primarily uphold God, but only when the government opposes the law of God, forcing you to sin, causing you to do something against the will and law of God, do you then oppose the government law. Does that make sense? This is clear. I don't know like what the confusion is in the church. Right? I know there's a lot of talk in like conservative groups in the in the world today about like are masks like really like a thing? Like should Christians be wearing masks? Like should we be abiding by these rules and laws? I don't know. Like to be honest, I don't know. But all I can say is wearing a mask doesn't make me sin. I don't see how wearing a mask is is like Okay, I've, I've, read, I've seen some ridiculous videos of like... Oh, I don't want to say ridiculous. Am I being mean here? I've seen some ridiculous videos of like these these Christians like in the South who are like, hey, like wearing a mask, you know, covers my face and I am an image of God. I am made in the image of God. I'm like, what? What does that mean? Like, where do you get that? Right? It's crazy. Like, if you were to go to space and put a helmet on your head, are you not going to wear a helmet because you want to, like, reflect the image of God in space? I don't think so. You'd die from no oxygen. I just don't get it. I don't know what the big deal with masks are. Whether they help or not, just... Okay, forget it. I'm getting political here. Anyways, so that's what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Like, when the government is making you sin, then you say no. It's just like the command of honoring your father and mother until they make you sin. Or when Paul speaks about husbands, you know, love your wives, wives, submit to your husbands, unless your husband or wife is making you sin, then no, don't do that, okay? Don't be like, if your husband's making you sin, and he goes, hey, you're supposed to submit to me, you're gonna be like, hey, you're an idiot, because you're making me sin, right? Your primary authority is the word of God. It is God, always. In house, right, in the household, in social circles and in the political sphere always Christ is head just uphold that it's a very simple rule to follow I don't know where this confusion comes from the angel that is found here of course in the den upon opening the as Daniel decrees or proclaims in the morning The angel could be, again, be the same angel that is found with Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace, as we read. It's a very equitable narrative of God's deliverance, right? One, you know, when the friends are thrown in. I guess it's kind of God's way of balancing out, like, their torture, right? It's like, Daniel wasn't there in the fiery furnace, so it's like, you get a lion's den. <laughs> it's like, let's balance it out, right? But omit the friends from the lion's den. But anyways, they're all thrown into something that will cause their death. It's very equitable narratives. The righteous shall live by faith, as we read in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. It's not our own righteousness that saves us, for none have righteousness on their own. But our faith is gifted to us by God, thus resulting in imputed righteousness of Christ in our own lives. And this gift of faith has us found in righteousness before God, thus justifying us before Him. Daniel knows what we know. All are deserving of death. That's why I don't think he fears it. But God's will alone can save His people and on our end, it is solely faith in Him that will conquer death in our lives. Our crimes of sin are foremost a crime against the Holy God. Verse 23, do not be confused or misled. The preservation of Daniel's life and deliverance in this narrative, and I've, I read a lot of sermons, watched a lot of sermons this week on this text. I want to hear what the varying sort of, uh, you know, 
I guess, Christian community, how they're interpreting this text. And too many of the sermons I read focused on the fact that Daniel survives. If Daniel died in this story, it's equally an amazing story. Equally. Do not get confused or misled. The preservation of Daniel's life and deliverance from the lions in this narrative is not an indication that all people of faith are given such a blessing. This story is equally magnificent and glorifying of God if Daniel is allowed to perish. His faithfulness and obedience are the things that we should be looking to, not his preservation. Right? Like we, I mean, I know we talk a lot about this, but like Lazarus being called out of the tomb. Everyone's like, oh, Lazarus, he walked out of the tomb. Lazarus, whoa, right? You know what's not extraordinary? The life of sin he lived. What good is it if you survive a lion's den but live in unfaithfulness and disobedience? Because those people are preserved too sometimes. It's not just unfaithful sinners that are dying, right? Everyone's dying. So it's his faithfulness and obedience and integrity before God that we should commend. This is, this is the evident in his life, regardless of what happens in the den. And that's what we should applaud as Christians. Consider that some Christians are called into martyrdom for their faith. And it is just as prolific and encouraging to the body. Right? I can just, I won't, but I can list off martyr after martyr after martyr of extraordinary men and women of Christ. In our history, that have preserved our faith to their grave they are glorifying of God think of Jesus Jesus himself was obedient in his following God's will perfectly more than any man ever did and he was found unjustly a criminal against Roman by Roman law punished by being sentenced to his death by means of crucifixion but there is no deliverance of Christ from the cross rather there is deliverance of men by his death all things are unto the glory of God. We don't question the means. We look to the purpose. Verse 24. The men who plotted against Daniel lost their lives. Their sins cost not only themselves, but their families as well. This is reminiscent of the sins of Achan, or Pharaoh losing his son in the tenth plague. The judgment of Darius is harsh from a stark, and it is a stark reminder that sin has incredibly deep costs. Incredible. This verse also verifies the very real danger that Daniel was in those, in with those lions, right? So some people have argued like, oh, was he really in danger? Maybe the lions had no teeth or like some bogus stuff like that I've read. But it, this verse 24 verifies it. They're thrown in before they even touch the ground. Their bones are broken. They're dead. Verse 25 to 28 to conclude, Darius makes a public proclamation of the God of Daniel, suggesting a deep change in heart. Some might say that these events worked to bring saving faith into the life of Darius. That's not something we can conclude and judge on our own right, but certainly at the very end of this chapter, God is feared, God is revered, God is honored, God is glorified, as he should be. As he should be. 
I'm going to conclude with this. Simple conclusion today. The book of Daniel follows a familiar pattern. The reason why I'm summing up the book of Daniel is we're past the narrative. Next week, we're going to conclude with the vision in chapter 7. The amazing, amazing prophecy of Daniel 7 that connects so much to the life and ministry of Christ. But we're going to get there. But I want to just sum up the narrative component of Daniel. The book of Daniel follows a very familiar pattern. God's people stand firm in their convictions. God honors and protects them. And the testimony of God's work makes the ungodly see and tell of the greatness of God. That was Daniel 1. That was Daniel 3. That was Daniel 5. That was Daniel 6. We keep seeing it over, over, over again. Daniel 1.20, we observe that Daniel and his four friends stood firm in the face of Nebuchadnezzar. And they refused to eat the fruit of the king. Daniel chapter 2, verses 46 to 47, Daniel boldly and wisely interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and the king honored Daniel and his God. In Daniel chapter 3, verses 28 to 30, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's three friends, stood firm, thrown into the fiery furnace, as Nebuchadnezzar did so, ultimately giving glory to God. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 to 37, Daniel boldly told Nebuchadnezzar the truth, and the king humbled himself and gave glory to God. Daniel chapter 5, verse 29, we read last week. Daniel stood firm and boldly told Belshazzar the truth, and the king honored Daniel. And finally today, Daniel chapter 6, Daniel continued to honor, worship, pray to God in the threat of death. And ultimately, we have Darius honoring God and giving glory unto him. So what's, what's simpler than this? The point is so simple, right? Do I even need to spell it out for you? When we stand firm in godly conviction and have faith, and we honor God with our lives, even when it costs us everything, I think this will act as a grounds of testimony to others, witness to the non-believing world, and ultimately, regardless of the preservation of our life, will be an act of glory. Two words. Stand firm. Right? Stand firm. Westminster Confessions, Chapter 17, Article 1. On the perseverance of the saints. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called, and sanctified by spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved and that is my prayer for you today let's pray as we go into time of prayer and reflect on the word of god i hope you've been challenged to stand firm in your faith in the midst of any any danger whether in the form of a fire furnace or in the form of a lion's den may we stand firm Let's pray.